All right. Well, I want to start by uh, thanking both uh, Dr. Javier Duran, Dr. J.C. Mutchler, and uh, Dr. Dolores, Seran, uh, Dolores Duran Cerda for addressing you know, so many important issues today. Um, Javier introduced you know, an academic view of the border, what people here at the U of A are studying uh, through different lenses and perspectives. And then J.C., by giving such a succinct history of the border and really tying it today, to today's issues. Um, you're going to get a lot more history tomorrow on our field visits to the, the State Museum and the Special Collections and elsewhere on campus and delve into some of those deeper. And then, of course, to Dolores for her wonderful presentation on identity in the borderlands as represented through the corridos, and um, including the themes that they encompass. So <clears throat> while they all got to address their passions and their expertise, I've been asked to uh, deal with data and, and facts and numbers, so it's kind of boring, but, but that's all right. Um, I'm a lifelong Arizona resident. I've crossed the border literally hundreds of times. I've lived in Cochise County and, and Pima County, Coconino County. Um, I most recently crossed the border yesterday at Mariposa Port of Entry, which they're expanding greatly. I was on my way back from the beach uh, for the Memorial Day weekend. I have a degree here from Anthropology and Spanish, my undergrad, and my master's in Latin American Studies and Political Science. I teach issues, uh, teach border issues to, to undergraduates. I work on some research grants and oversee some of them. So Michelle asked me to give you a little bit of an overview of the geography, the economy, and some policy issues on the U.S.-Mexico border. She thought that that would be helpful for you, and, and I hope to give you some of that. So just kind of to frame some of the issues quickly, um, you saw some photos of the border, and we'll show some more in a minute, but there are, there are 12 million people that live in the region, right? in the border region within, within 50 miles of either side of the border. <clears throat> the U.S.-Mexico border is the most trafficked border in the world with 350 million crossings a year, right? Um, there are 10 states uh, that border, right? Four in the U.S., six in Mexico. So obviously California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas on our side. And then in Mexico you have Baja California, Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, and uh, Tamaulipas. <coughs> Along that border you have uh, 45 crossings total crossing points and 14 pairs of sister cities that are there, right? You have 44 counties and 80 municipalities, 125 indigenous groups, 25 reservations, and about 900,000 Native Americans that live there, right? So those are just some, some numbers to throw out at you quickly. As you can see, the border, you know, as you know, the border goes from California to Texas. It's 2,000 miles long. It goes from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. The western half uh, is determined by survey and man-made lines, right? Arbitrary lines. The eastern half is defined by the, the Rio Grande, the river along the Texas border, right? So um, along the California, you know, in California you have everything from the coast to the mountains to the desert uh, and then to the canals of the Colorado River, the All-American Canal that runs along the border. Arizona, we're defined, you know, by the Colorado River and the deserts and the mountains in between. New Mexico similarly has mountains and the Chihuahuan Desert, right? And then Texas, of course, is defined, the border is defined by the Rio Grande and the rough, rugged terrain and open country that goes along with it. So it just kind of gives you an idea of the, the border geography and some of the, the pictures from along the border and what you would see along the way. So like I said, coast in California to the dunes and the Ote Mesa and the outside of San Diego and the mountains there. Arizona, you get the scrublands and the mountains, right? And then in Texas and the Rio Grande more open country there. Um, just a little bit about the border cities, right? Um, border cities are, are all along the border. Uh, the big ones are Tijuana, San Isidro, um, Ambos Nogales, the two Nogaleses, both Nogaleses, Laredo, Nuevo Laredo, and El Paso Juarez, right? There's a few things that, that all these cities have in common, right? 
and, and some of them are different and distinct, obviously, but in all cases, the, the population on the Mexican side is anywhere between five to 10 times larger than on the American side. So in Ambos Nogales, you have maybe 20,000 people, or Nogales, Arizona, I'm sorry, maybe 20,000 people. In Nogales, Sonora, they estimate 200,000. It's hard to tell, the population fluctuates with migration, and it's, it's harder to count people when they don't have you know, addresses and physical addresses like we have here, so it's, that's an estimate. Um, in San Diego, you know, Tijuana, you have in Tijuana, three million people, in San Diego, one and a half million, so that's one of the ones that's closer in size, but uh, Mexicali, you know, is, is just under a million, and there's 40,000 in Calexico on the other side. Um, El Paso Juarez, about 800,000. Oh, El Paso is 800,000. Juarez used to be close to two million. They're estimating the population is a lot lower these days, closer to a million. Uh, that many people fled in the last five years in the drug war, right? Again, uh, Brownsville, Matamoros is similar. You know, Brownsville is 150,000, and Matamoros is, is 450,000. So you see a lot of similarities in the border cities in terms of the sizes and the the differences in terms of infrastructure and development as well. Obviously, the Arizona-Sonora border is defined by uh, the main cities and ports of entry on the west over by Yuma. You have San, San Miguel, San Luis, Colorado, and then Sasabe, then Nogales, uh, Naco, and Agua Prieta, Douglas. Those are the, the official ports of entry. There are a few other smaller ones in between, Loquillo, and a few other places where traditionally they've let agriculture go through, but those are the main points of entry, right? along the Arizona-Sonora border. And the Arizona-Sonora border is uh, sort of the hot, the hotbed for activity in the border now, both illegal immigration and, and drug trafficking in the last 10 years. We'll get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. But in terms of the border economy, every day on this border, one million people and a billion dollars in goods cross the border every single day. So um, in terms of trade, since NAFTA was took, took effect in the mid-1990s, um, it tripled the exports U.S. exports to Mexico, and it quadrupled Mexico's exports to the United States. Right? So, um, 80% of Mexican exports that they export, all all told, are value, are destined for the United States. So, in 2010, 80% of their exports uh, brought in 230 billion um, to them. From the U.S., um, we shipped 163 billion worth of goods, and uh, which accounted for over half of Mexico's imports, right? So Mexico imports more than half of their goods from us. In terms of the, the border residents and per capita income, right? Along, the, well, in the US, the US per capita income, average income in the United States of America per person is 40,000. In Mexico, it's closer to 10,000. In the border region in the US side, it's lower. It's closer to 30,000, maybe a little less, right? The, the average border resident makes. In Mexico, it's actually higher. The average border resident in Mexico makes slightly more than the average Mexican, maybe 12, 12 to 14,000 rather than 10,000. The salaries are a little bit higher, a little bit better jobs, right? In terms of, of the maquiladoras, maquiladoras and, and the technologies tourism. and uh -huh. tourism and, okay. and a variety of things. There's also, in NAFTA created special economic zones along the border region, and so there's extra incentives for businesses to set up there, and so. Are these actual wages, or is this more like gross national product per capita? Yeah, it's per capita. Okay, so, so it's not the actual wages that people would earn, but the kind of, okay. It's the average by, by region, though. By geographic region, there's a disparity to the overall. But yeah, they are averages per capita. And these are from the, the U.S. State Department and the, the CIA World Factbooks. So in terms of um, the Mexican economy and how it's broken down, um, I mentioned that agricultural accounts for, uh, or I didn't mention, but I will not, it's 5% of the GDP, and 95% of agricultural exports are destined for the United States. 
80% of Mexican food imports come from the U.S., and they're relying more and more on imported food from the United States since NAFTA took effect. Manufacturing accounts for about 30% of the Mexican economy, and much of that is centered in the north, in Monterrey, Mexico, and then also in the south, in, in Guadalajara, and in Mexico City. The maquila sector, which we talked about, is, um, is concentrated along the U.S.-Mexico border, thanks to economic incentives, access to capital um, from the U.S., and access to labor on the Mexican side. Of all the maquilas, 80% of them are owned by the United States, uh, by U U.S. citizens, and run by U.S. citizens. 90% of the products that are created in those Mexican maquilas are shipped back across the border for about $115 billion in bilateral trade in 2009. Uh, also really important for Mexico is oil, right? For the U.S., Mexico is our third largest importer. We import first from Canada, then Saudi Arabia, and then Mexico, over 1,000 barrels a day from Mexico. And then finally, we, the last that I mentioned, but certainly not the least important, is remittances, right? The $21 billion in 2010 that Mexican citizens here sent back home. So here's some of the stats that should have flipped a little faster. So yeah, million and billion. Um, so the U.S. is Mexico's number one trading partner and exports 80% of these goods. But you got to take that with a grain of salt, right? Our economy is so much larger than theirs that, that they're not nearly as important to us. So overall, you know, Mexico's trade to us, it only represents 3% of our trade and less than 1% of GDP, right? So even though they're one of our biggest trading partners, most of the U.S. economy is based on domestic consumption. So even though it's an important relationship, especially for Mexico, it's not nearly as important for the U.S. and, and we don't have to pay attention nearly as much, right? as they do to that relationship. Uh, in terms of Mexico's economy, uh, they have 114 million people with a GDP of close to a, a, a trillion dollars. So per capita income, like I said, was $10,000, around that, a little less than that. The Mex Mexico is classified as an upper middle income country by the World Bank. Despite the fact that 44% of its population live below the poverty line, 20% of the population is in extreme poverty, right? And so, as the gentleman pointed out, these per capita, per capita levels of income really mask very high levels of economic and social inequality, right? So Mexico has some of the richest people in the world, well, the richest man in the world, right? right? Carlos yeah. Slim, the richest man in the world now, and, and some of its poorest people, too. So, you know, foreign direct investment was, was $17 billion in 2010, $12 billion of that was from the U.S., so we're by far Mexico's most important trading partner. So the breakdown of the Mexican you know, economic sector is there. But like I said, it, it translates into the power of the relationship. Who's got the power? Who's, who's got the money? Who's writing the laws? So again, the trade sector, broke it down a little bit for you. Tourism, agriculture. So tourism is by, by far the most important aspect of the Mexican economy. It brings in nearly 50% of the GDP. So this is obviously, tourism is easily hurt by global recession, bad weather, or bad publicity, right? The swine flu, the Mexican swine flu. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to go to Mexico after the swine flu, and it really hurt them. And so, you know, there's an old expression that, you know, when the, when the U.S. sneezes, Mexico catches a cold. And, and it's somewhat true, not sadly. So in terms of agricultural products, you know, Mexico is traditionally known for growing corn and beans, rice, also coffee and cotton, citrus, and livestock. Um, but, but not actually much of that gets exported. Most of it is for domestic consumption. Yeah? Remember what your Mexico nationalized its oil? It was after the revolution. What's that? 
Well, yeah, and they, they first nationalized it after the revolution, and then it's grown since then. And, and Pemex, as you'll see, so energy, it's, it's the seventh largest oil producer in the world. Mexico is the third largest. What's that? I think it was 1928 or 1938. Yeah, it was under, uh, under Cardenas. The first Lázaro Cardenas in the 1930s nationalized a lot of the, the resources, both oil and, and mineral resources in Mexico. The Mexican Revolution was, you know, a largely a product of a reaction to foreigners controlling most of the, the, the economy, right? Both natural resources and infrastructure. So all the, all the oil, all the mining, it was controlled by foreign corporations. The railroad, built by foreign corporations. Power lines, everything, owned by foreign corporations, right? So um, Pemex, in terms of Mexico, the Petróleos Mexicanos, they're owned by the government, run by the government, it's a monopoly completely. Um, but it, it's really important to them nonetheless, and it represents 14% of all of its export earnings for Mexico. So 14% of Mexico's you know, exports are from Pemex and from oil. <clears throat> and a full third, practically, of its tax base comes from Pemex, from the oil company. So a third of all public expenditures and public revenues in Mexico come from Pemex. So it's hugely important to the government and the government staying in power, right? So. It's also another really important thing, like I said, is remittances. In 2010, there were 21.3 billion, so that's the second largest source of foreign currency after oil. That number has really dropped significantly. We're sort of waiting for more numbers to come out, you know, based on the U.S. Uh, recession here and, and people not being able to make as much money. Uh, Mexico also has a lot of other natural resources besides oil, mostly silver and copper, but also some natural gas and timber. Manufacturing is important segment of the co economy. They, they manufacture a lot of cars, electronics. At one time, they produced a lot of clothing and textiles. A lot of that got sucked away to, to China and, and Southeast Asia after, they, after China joined the WTO and, and more, companies and more countries in Southeast Asia embraced market economies. And I mentioned the maquilas and, and the fact that most of them are owned by U.S. interests. So we've done a, a quick and dirty geography, quick and dirty economy of Mexico. Now we're going to look a little bit about border policy and, and, and the U.S. Again, it's going to be a little bit quick and dirty overview of the U.S. policies towards the U.S.-Mexico border and towards immigration. And so I think, I think it's important to think back to what J.C. Mutual had to say earlier, right, about the ebbs and flows of trying to control the U.S.-Mexico border, especially how those ebbs and flows, you know, uh, are correspond with our economic success here in the U.S. So the U.S. first started, you know, thinking about border policy and immigration policy with, in 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, in terms of affecting the Western United States. There was a lot of policy in the East Coast and Ellis Island before that and quotas and whatnot, but we'll go into too much of that. But in the West, so in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and that's when you saw the first sort of organized border patrols and posses that were, were sent out to collect the Chinese that were brought over to build the railroads and, and deport them, right? And a lot of times it was easier to deport them back to Mexico than it was to put them on boats, or a lot of them fled into Mexico. You see in Mexicali and in other areas of northern Mexico, there's, there's Chinese influence, right? Some of the best Chinese food I've ever had was in, in Mexicali. And, and Hermosillo, there's, there's some good Chinese food down there, too, and, and, and people left over from, from the 1800s that were chased out of the U.S. Um, in 1924, you had the Immigration Control Act, it set a lot of these quotas and numbers, right? And, and you saw the first um, official federally funded posses, right? And, and border patrol agents at that time. And so they started cracking down then. But then, as JC mentioned earlier, that, you know, uh, 
1945, we entered World War II. We sent a lot of our strong young men. We entered earlier, 40, 41. But in 45, the Bracero program was put into place to import Mexican labor to make up for the soldiers that we sent abroad, right? And so you had the Bracero program that ran from 45 to 60 and, and imported a lot of labor from Mexico. Um, the next major policy change and shift from the United States happened in 1986 under Reagan, right? IRCA, the Immigra Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. So most people remember this as the amnesty, right? The amnesty period. The, the 10 million people that were in the, in the states illegally in the shadows were given amnesty and citizenship. But it also set up our modern immigration system with the INS and Border Patrol and a lot of the stuff that we recognize today. Under Bill Clinton in the 1990s, we saw the passage of NAFTA and more immigration reform bills that he passed. I think it's really important to point out that NAFTA dealt with goods and information and even some environmental issues, but it said nothing about labor, right? Nothing. And this wasn't an accident. It wasn't easy for Clinton from his constituents, labor unions and, and, and organizers here in the U.S., and it wasn't easy for Mexicans either to deal with, so it got pushed off. It wasn't, there's nothing in NAFTA about labor. But under Bill Clinton, he did have a very concerted policy towards immigration, right? And um, the largest buildup in the militarization of the border occurred under the Clinton regime. So this is the, the time period where you saw the most number of voluntary deportations, or the spikes in it, they actually have gone up since then. And also the, you know, the catch and release policy that we know it, right? With the border patrol to catch people and let them get back go and, and chase them around. So you see a lot under Clinton, um, in terms of structural policy changes, there weren't, there wasn't a, a, a legislation that was passed that he tweaked what he could uh, as with presidential decree. So he grew the border patrol. At that time in the 1990s, most migrants that were coming through were coming through urban areas, right? They're coming through El Paso, Juarez. They're coming through San Diego, Tijuana. They're crossing through there. It's fairly easy to get across. It costs a lot less uh, than it does these days. And you know, there were some border patrol, but for the most part, the, the flow was fairly unabated. So uh, in the early 1990s, Bill Clinton starts these operations, Hold the Line, Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Wetback, that focus on these urban areas, right? They crack down on the urban areas. So up until the 1990s, Arizona wasn't a destination for migrants to, to cross through the border. Why would you come through the Arizona desert when you could go through the tunnels of Tijuana or, the, or just cross the Rio Grande in Texas? You wouldn't. So people weren't, the, the numbers, the flows in the 80s and 90s through Arizona were much lower. Right? And so then what we happened was what, what people here at the University of Arizona called the funnel effect. Right? You, you squeezed them on the sides and you pushed them towards the middle. You pushed them to, towards our desert, to our Sonoran desert, right? in our backyard. And part of this was a, a, intentional. Right? They did it intentionally because they, they thought that the, the desert would be a deterrence factor. Right? They thought that people weren't going to be so willing to cross through the deserts. But, but we know that that's not true because hundreds of people die every year trying to cross through there. Right? Um, so George Bush was elected in 2000, and however you feel about the guy, he actually had a really good immigration plan, a grasp of immigration issues, right? He, came, he was the governor of Texas, he understood the issues, he understood both the need for the labor that came across, but also for, you know, some semblance of security. And so, um, for the first time ever, George Bush, you know, his first state visit was not to Canada, it was to Mexico, right? He visited Vicente Fox before he went up to Canada. And this signaled that he was going to tackle some of these issues, and he was, he was serious about it. But then in 2001, 9-11 happened, the terrorist attacks, and that was not a priority anymore, right? Went way down the line. And so since then, you haven't seen any real federal, federal legislation other than the shift in, in 2003 when they created the Department of Homeland Security, 
and it took over um, Border Patrol, INS, Customs, and, and lumped them into one larger agency. Uh, since then, you haven't seen any federal legislation passed, but you have seen a lot of state-level legislation, right? In the 1990s in California, you saw English-only English laws passed, and then all the way up to today in Arizona and Alabama and other states that are passing anti-immigrant laws. And so, you know, 2012, you have Obama campaigning and other folks on the DREAM Act and, and for comprehensive immigration reform, um, but we haven't seen it yet, and I don't think we're likely to see it anytime soon. I'd like also to point out that both under Bush and Obama, the policies that Clinton implemented of growing the Border Patrol and militarizing the border were expanded, right? And so more Border Patrol was hired, more technology was bought, more infrastructure was added to the border during those years. And under Obama, <coughs> under the Obama administration, deportations have actually risen over the, every year since he's been in power, right? And um, he's created new programs like, like Operation Streamline that happen every day in downtown Tucson where they're trying ma uh, immigrants in mass, hundreds at a time, or 100 at a time, every day as a deterrent factor, right? So they're slapping ever more criminal sanctions and, and felony records on migrants to try to deter them from coming along. And so you also saw a shift in this period, too. In, in the 1980s, you saw a lot of workforce and workplace enforcement, right? So they would go to factories and raid the factories and, and get people there. Well, businesses didn't like that, and businesses have lobbies and, and have more power. And so they pushed back a lot, and, it, and that's when it changed from work, workplace enforcement to more border enforcement on the line, right? So that was another shift that's important to note. So today, you know, I don't think we're likely to, to see any type of reform. Obviously not this year, an election year, right? So in terms of border enforcement, these are some of the images that you see along the line, right? You see the National Guard troops and the, and the Border Patrol and all their technology and their wares, the helicopters, the ATVs. And then you see on the other side the migrants coming across, leaving their trash, climbing the walls, right? The, the drug smugglers going through tunnels or, like you said, going over the walls. Well, this is a ramp, portable ramp that they take, drive it up and over. Yeah. Because it's, it's an election year, and it's a hot potato issue, and it's a lot easier to talk about than it actually is to address, right? And, and also the incentives aren't there. The incentives, the economic incentives and the lobbies, right? We see more and more the, the incentives, you know, I think SB 1070, there was a great report on NPR, right? And, and that, that it was written in the same room with conservative um, PACs, or ALEC, the conservative PAC, and also with the Corrections Corporation of America. In those, those players were in the room as this legislation was written, right? And so the only type of legislation we've seen is to crack down more on immigration, right? Because that's politically palpable for voters. That's what voters want to hear. Nobody else wants to hear that you're going to do less on crime, right? And any type of crime, whether it's immigration or drug or, or anything. You, politicians aren't elected on, on being softer on crime. So the incentive for politicians is to be harder, right? To have more security. So now, you know, used to it used to be more of a Republican issue of border security, but now Democrats agree on border security, right? Even Obama says the border must be secured first. So that's that's a stipulation of even, you know, comprehensive immigration reform, which is considered, you know, something more likely. The first thing is to secure the border, and then the economic interests, right? Migrants don't have lobbying groups. Migrants don't have, you know, power in Washington where. The businesses that employ them and profit from them do. The corrections, you know, the, the prison guards, the prison unions have incentives, right? Border patrol, they have incentives. The wares, the technology, the transportation, the modes of transportation, those are American businesses that are profiting, right? 
I mean, Hummers and, and trucks that are being sold to Border Patrol through GSA are bought through local businesses, right, in local areas. So people are benefiting from it, right? <clears throat> in downtown, the Operation Streamline, how many people are employed by putting those people through? Judges, attorneys, transportation, right? Transportation is all done by, by private transportation companies, Wackenhut Corporation, right? The private company that Border Patrol contracts to, to transport their people. Now they're, they're, they're contracting private prisons to, to hold the immigrants in, in detention facilities, right? So there's a lot of people making money off the system, off the status quo. And so the incentives just aren't there, especially in terms of immigration, but also in, in terms of drugs too, right? So the so Border Enforcement. So Border Patrol, um, now they're 20,000 strong. When they were first, you know, under Bill Clinton, they were 4,000. So they've, they've quadrupled, some, or more than quadrupled since the Clinton administration. Uh, in the last decade. So by Border Patrol's own account, they estimate that they have total control, what they call operational control, of about 129 miles of that 2,000-mile border. That means out of that 2,000-mile border, 129 miles, they know everything that comes and goes, right? Or they think they do. But, and they think they have a good control of another 700, possibly, you know, 700 miles. So maybe eight or 900 of the miles are, are, have some type of control or presence of Border Patrol. The rest of it's pretty wide open, and they rely on either nature and mountains and, and rugged landscapes to, to do their job. <clears throat> so currently, there's about 640 miles of actual fence along the border. That number changes daily because they're building it at a cost of about a million dollars a mile. That includes both the full-size fences and vehicle barriers, right? So the full-size fence up to here, the vehicle barriers are just spikes in the ground set where people could walk through or, or, or animals could walk through, but cars couldn't drive through so easily. So you have about 650, 640 miles of fence. Um, last year, there were 400,000 deportations, and um, more than half of them, close to 60% of them, were to Mexico. The other were to the rest of the world, right? And we've heard the number, there's 12 million illegals in the U.S. today, estimated population, right? 60% of those are estimated to be from Mexico. Do you know how many of those will repeat? Repeat? No, they don't keep track of that. Or, they, or if they do, they don't tell you. Okay. The, the repeat numbers used to be a lot higher than they are now because they, they're slapping more criminal sanctions on and, and making it harder for people to come back and making them you know, less incentives or, or more negative incentives, right? If you get caught a second time, you're much more likely to, to serve time and to get slapped with the record. That's true. And also, people just aren't, aren't leaving, going back to Mexico like they, they used to before. A lot of people are just afraid to even move, so they stay where they are in the U.S. Yeah, no, I, it's right. Migration used to be very circular. People would come seasonally. Well, people, I should say men, right? It was almost all men. Productive labor, right? Ages 20 to, age 15 to 40, 50. The vast majority came from that age group from men, right? And they would come circularly, come seasonally, leave their families back home and go visit their families back home for several months and then come up to the states and work circuits. So as, as they made it harder and harder to cross, more and more people stayed, as you mentioned, and more, more people brought their families with them when they came, right? And so you see a whole different face to migration these days. They say it's, it's closer to 60-40 these days would be male gender based, right? Where it used to be close to 85% male, and now it's 60-40, guesstimate, right? And you see more and more kids getting taken across and a lot of other issues that that brings up, right? So U.S. Border Patrol's job, first of all, first and foremost, is to uh, prevent terrorism. That's in their charter. And when they were taken over by Department of Homeland Security, they changed their mission, right? So Border Patrol's number one mission now is, is to fight terrorism. After that, it's uh, human smuggling, drug smuggling, and customs enforcement. 
So those are the, the new priorities is laid out after the switch to DHS. So in terms of policy and national governance, right? Well, both sides have a lot of the same issues, but there's different perspectives, right? Diplomacy, law enforcement, commerce, environment, labor, right? So from, the, from our side, we want to keep people out. From the Mexican side, it's in the Mexican Constitution, as it is ours, that, that the people have a right to move freely within their country and without of their country, right? So if you want to move to another country as a U.S. citizen, our government has no right to stop you, right? And they have no way to put impediments, and they shouldn't anyway, put impediments in your way. Same with the Mexican government, right? It's in their Constitution to allow their people to move freely within their country and without. So when we talk about you know, law enforcement in Mexico, they have organizations, the Grupo Beta, that are there to protect migrants' rights, to look out for them you know, as they're crossing through their country and, and even outside the country. In terms of commerce, right? We want to, both countries want to protect their interests, their businesses, their strong sectors, right? A lot of times that comes into conflict. The environment, right? Um, Mexico has, on paper, on, on the books, has some of the most stringent environmental laws on the planet, but most of them don't go enforced, right? And it's sort of a little bit on the opposite side here. We, we don't have nearly as stringent of laws, but we have the EPA and there's some bite behind it. And in terms of labor, right? The United States, in terms of dealing with labor, we have quotas, we have visas, right? We want to we want to regulate it, tightly regulate it. Well, Mexico has a surplus of labor, right? They have high unemployment or it's less unemployment than underemployment. They have a huge number of underemployed people and underpaid people. So, you know, labor for them is a valve, a safety valve, right? Let the labor out before they grow restless here in the country. Not only that, take the remittances back. So in terms of national governance, you know, you, they're the same issues but different perspectives, very different perspectives and different ways of, of carrying them out. In terms of international governance, right? There's a lot of different organizations that exist today that, that, that oversee international governance. So some of these things are outside of, of U.S. and Mexico's control, right? So a lot of this stuff is written in the NAFTA. You know, they have the Border Environment Commission and other um, regula regulatory agencies that are involved. You have the WTO that deals with trade settlements. You have the United Nations, right, that deals with human rights issues. Um, and then you have other organizations that were created, you know, bilaterally, like the International Water Boundary Commission that deals just pretty much with the Colorado River and, and the and the Rio Grande River. And then you have state level, you know, initiatives and organizations, the Border Governors Conference, you have the Arizona Mexico Commission, you know, the, the Arizona um, that Governor Brewer and, and Governor Padres from Sonora are part of. Uh, and then of course the Organization of American States that is pretty much a powerless group. <laughs> yeah. Um, often often we hear that, that NAFTA had a negative effect on the Mexican economy and uh, it, it uh, provoked a lot of immigration, emigration out of Mexico to the U.S. Is there data to support that, that, that NAFTA harmed uh, the Mexican economy, or at least the poor well, that's a good point. So it depends on how you define the economy, right? We talked about in terms of exports and trade, it, it helped it, right? It, they quadrupled the exports and the, and the numbers that they were able to create. But those were in certain sectors, right? High value sectors, manufacturing sectors. So what NAFTA did was create, before Mexico had a, a lot of tariffs and protected a lot of their, their agricultural industries, right? So, so poor farmers, subsistence-based farmers were protected from you know, market values of corn and beans, right? So NAFTA took down a lot of those tariffs 
And so a few years ago, you had the tortilla crisis where, where corn in Mexico was, was, the price shot way up, right? And people couldn't afford it anymore. But a lot of that had to do with U.S. corn the year before, flooding the market, reducing the cost of corn so people stopped growing it, right? And then, and then the prices shot up. And so it depends on the region, right? So after NAFTA, you saw a huge influx and growth of these maquilas, right? And so it was a boom to the Mexican economy in the short term, and especially along the border region. We saw overnight factories build up and bring labor from all over Mexico and elsewhere to the border region to work those jobs, those higher paying jobs. But then after, I mentioned China joins the WTO in 2000, Southeast Asian economies start doing really well and start you know, maximizing their labor. So a lot of those maquilas move shop to Southeast Asia and the unemployment rate goes up in Mexico. Unemployment and underemployment, right? So in terms of exports and in terms of you know, the GDP, it's helped. But in terms of jobs, it's hurt, definitely. And in terms of small farmers and subsistence farmers in southern Mexico, it's hurt. So to wrap things up, what about the University of Arizona's role in all this, right? So we're here, and you're going to go visit the museums, the libraries, and the departments tomorrow. They're devoted to studying these issues, right, and these research projects. Here at the university, we're training the future leaders, the law enforcement, the businessmen, the academics, the policymakers, right? We're also, you know, we have some of the best expertise in the entire country on water issues and natural resource issues, right? We're home to the Udall Center for Public Policy Studies that writes white papers and encourages the government to act on, on issues. Uh, a few years ago, the University of Arizona won a contract from the Department of Homeland Security. They now receive over $12 million a year to be a center of excellence in border security. So the university has this money to develop um, research projects and, and technology to deal with border issues, right? Most of it goes to the technology side of it, science and technology side. Some of it goes to education, but a lot less. Uh, you also have a lot of research and development projects that are on the border. Um, the Bureau for Applied Research and Anthropology has sent students down to the border every day to work with the, the, the colonias, the squatter settlements, the poor neighborhoods there, and setting up everything from you know composting toilets to crate paper houses to setting up childcare centers and, and all sorts of stuff. You know we also host a lot of outside students and visitors here to the university and teach them about border issues, right? And so the university really has a large role to play in in policy and in, in border issues, right? And so you're going to get to see a lot more of that tomorrow as you walk around campus and. Uh, visit some of the sites and meet with some of the other people. Like I mentioned, JC and, well, JC and Javier both mentioned that they have an aversion to policy issues you know, in terms of border issues. But that's not the case with a lot of UMA faculty. They're heavily involved in all sorts of different areas, right? especially water and environment, but also more and more with homeland security and, and technology and, and studies that way. So I think you guys have some questions or 